I'm Michelle Shoemate, and this is Networks for Social Impact, a podcast from the Network for Nonprofit and Social Impact at Northwestern University. Stick around to hear research insights on how organizations working together can and do move the needle on the most pressing social issues of our time. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Jenna Wirth of Voyage in Wilmington, North Carolina. Voyage, in addition to being one of the eight networks that we identify in Networks for Social Impact in Education as being a successful network and moving the needle on student achievement, is also a standout when it comes to equity practices. In this episode, I particularly appreciated the way that Jenna talked about their community outreach advocate model, which has become a signature program for the network and what I believe is really behind the increase that they saw over the time that they've been operating in fourth grade reading. In this conversation, we really take a deep dive into what a engaged network that places equity at the center of its work looks like. Today, I'm welcoming to the show Jenna Wirth of Voyage, located in Wilmington, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Thanks so much, Michelle. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here, in part because you're one of the eight successful networks that we list in our report. Um, But I'm also interested in you being here because you've had a really interesting journey in Voyage. So, Give us a little context. First, tell us a little bit about Wilmington, North Carolina, and then how did you go from the Blue Ribbon Commission to Voyage? What's that journey been like? Sure. Um, So Voyage started off as the Blue Ribbon Commission on the Prevention of Youth Violence in 2008. Uh, Again, we are located in Wilmington, North Carolina, which has a few pockets um, specifically towards the inner city area where we're seeing Um, large amounts of intergenerational poverty. And we were really brought together in 2008 from some city and county local officials and decision makers that noticed that there was increased rates of youth violence, particularly gun violence, in an area defined as the youth enrichment zone, which is located in the north side of Wilmington. So um, southeast North Carolina, but the northern part of that towards the city is really where we're focused. and, And we're kind of expanding over time with that. So in 2008, uh, this group of local officials came together and said, we've got to do something. And it started as an initiative under the United Way of the Cape Fear area. In late 2012, about November, December time, we decided that we had grown large enough as an organization to go off on our own two feet and to become our own 501c3. And so we were very heavily involved in the revitalization and reinvigoration of a school called DC Virgo. It was originally a a 7th and 8th grade school, a middle school, um, and it was taken over by UNCW and Voyage, which was then the BRC, was very heavily involved in reopening that school, and it it is now a K through 8 school. And so when we started off as a nonprofit, we had an office in what they called their parent room. And it was simply providing um, connections to existing resources and to provide a support network for families with students that could use a little bit of extra help, whether that was academically, behaviorally, other things going on in their life. And it was a space that parents could come in and, and get connected with resources as well. 
So after a few years there, we expanded again and we got our own location in our own building at um, right in the heart of the north side. And it was called the Hemingway Center. Now, there's definitely some history there that's important because the Hemingway Center has been a lot of different things. It wasn't always a building utilized for nonprofit uh, involvement. And there was utilized previously by some businesses. But um, what what's really uh presented a challenge for us in terms of connecting with the community is that it used to be some sort of police interrogation. I'm not exactly sure what the the specific name for it was, but it obviously really um, put a damper on those relationships and trust just when it came to the representation of, of what that building stood for. So we have, over the past few years, we moved in there in about 2015, I believe, um, Yep, yeah, because our contracts just ran up and we just renewed for another nine years. And we've really worked on building community and building trust. And we already had a little bit of a platform because of our model that we use, which is the Community Outreach Advocate Model. It was based out of Multnomah County, out in um, Washington. And it was based on this STRIVE initiative where um, we wanted to hire people from the community that were already trusted individuals, already doing the great work that could be um, fine-tuned a little bit through proper training, and build them up, empower those community members. And, and how that helps the organization connect with the community members is that these are people that they've grown up with. These are grandparents. These are parents of the kids that we're serving. So it's really important to that we've based our model and adapted it to our specific community needs and, and how we situate ourselves in that community. Those trust and relationships were just um, invaluable to us. I mean, they were really what what put us in a position to be able to attract so much community input and so much involvement and participation. And it wasn't always an easy road to travel. Um, sometimes you're going to have to to troubleshoot those things. Um, and I think that we'll go a little bit more into that later on in, in our conversation. Um, but now in 2020, actually, we switched over to Voyage. And that was due to um, just a, not necessarily a difference in what our end goal was, but it was a difference in the path that we took to get there. There was different strategies used. So before, when we were focused on the prevention of youth violence, we were really trying to heavily, like directly affect the violence. As we did more research, we realized that those risk factors for increased violence were heavily correlated with the social determinants of health and what we've kind of defined as those indicators for successful communities. So when we're talking about health, I want us to get away from like basic just thinking about nutrition, bodily health, and exercise. I want us to start thinking about occupational health, employment, um, educational health, social capital, and your influence in your community, the systems and environments that are surrounding um, us as a community that impact our everyday lives. Those are the aspects and those indicators for successful communities. And what we're finding is that successful communities have much uh, decreased rates of violent crime, gun violence, youth violence. So we're like, if we can get at those root issues, then we're going to kind of kill multiple birds with one stone. You know, we're, we're going to be able to impact that violence because of that correlation, or at least we hope so. Um, and, and simultaneously, we'll be able to create pathways to success. Our mission is to connect youth with pathways to success in so many different areas. We won't just define successes getting an education or having a job or having social capital, we find success to be this wraparound, um, these wraparound indicators are what make you successful. So it's it's having a good job. Maybe it's having a good education. Maybe it's that you're really involved in the decisions that impact your daily lives in terms of the systems and institutions. So 
we feel that um, by following the CDC's social ecological model of in order to impact that individual, you need to impact the family and the community and the systems. If we can hit all of those different things and address them um, and address all of those social determinants of health as the way that they relate to those different levels of that social ecological model, we're going to really maximize our impact. So um, we've changed we've changed our route to go there. So we're now all of our programs, we want to hit at least once on all of those social determinants of health. So rather than just focusing on violence, we're focusing on all, all of our health to try to get that indirect effect of decreasing youth violence. Um, the social determinants of health in our program and how they relate to their, our programs, we have three primary pillars. Um, the first is fostering advocacy and leadership. So that involves our uh, what used to be our Youth Leadership Council. We're taking a different approach. It's called YOLO. Um, and, I'm, and I'm happy to go further into YOLO, which stands for Youth Over Local Obstacles, later on in our conversation. Um, but we have that group of youth that um, basically identifies issues and provides a blueprint for how to provide innovative solutions to decision makers. We then have programs underneath a broad uh, pillar called Empowering Individuals and Families. So that's our COA model, which we're training our COAs and putting them through certifications to be certified community health workers. And that means that we are connecting, um, we are first identifying what success means to our families, what goals do they have, and then helping them to prioritize those goals and come up with a sustainable strategic action plan that has SMART goals to help them achieve those goals. They could be really huge goals like, hey, I want to go back to school and get my degree and improve my career. Or it could be, hey, I'm having trouble saving up for a car and transportation is one of my main barriers. So whatever those goals are, whether they're six months, a year, five years down the road, we want to be that support network for our families and connecting them with pathways to success. The next program we have is our summer youth employment program. We're ramping up to have 85 students in that program, and um, we've grown from 24 students in our first year. So that is huge for us in providing youth that are facing barriers to employment with not just a summer job, but an employment experience in their career field of interest. So it's mentorship, it's career exploration, it's networking opportunities, it's training in, in professionalism, it's getting your foot in the door in a healthcare system if you want to be a doctor or working with the DA if you want to be a lawyer later on in your life and proving that you can do it. And we're providing them, the youth with that experience and that confidence. The next program is um, a free math one and math two tutoring for our students that have fallen a bit behind in math, help them get back on track. The fourth program is in partnership with Young Scientist Academy located here in Wilmington, actually right across from us in our second location uh, that we just obtained in January of this year. Um, and we provide after-school care and in STEM uh, instruction to our youth. We find that if we're looking at um, uh, influencing our youth and connecting them with Pathways to Success, and we look at the higher-paying career fields and those career fields that are experiencing increased rates of growth, that's STEM. And if we're looking at the representation of our uh, population that we are predominantly serving, they're highly underrepresented in STEM careers. So what's the biggest bang for our buck? Providing them with pathways and experiences and exposure to STEM careers early on. Um, so we do that in, in collaboration with Young Scientists Academy. And then the last program under that pillar is in collaboration with an organization called Pivot via Virtual Reality, which is virtual reality life coaching and mentorship uh, for teens ages 14 to 16 in helping them come with a personalized plan to become the best versions of themselves and taking them out of their immediate environment. 
The final pillar that we have is focused on social bonding theory, and it's called um, fostering community connectedness and positive social bonding opportunities. And so we're all about making sure that we have positive intergenerational community experiences, because the more often you're engaged in those positive social bonding opportunities, the less likely you are to engage in criminal or delinquent behavior later on. And so we do community cookouts, annual events, community field days, um, resource drives, like all of this stuff for the community to just bring them together and give them fun opportunities to just, you know, interact with each other. We also provide um, financial assistance for if we don't have an extracurricular activity that fits the student's interests. We have partnerships with different sports and other organizations that do have a cost where that cost will be waived if they are referred by Voyage. So all of this being said, each of those programs hits on one or more of the social determinants of health so that we can provide true wraparound uh, experiences, wraparound services, and really do our best in maximizing our efficiency and connecting youth with pathways to success. That gives us a fantastic overview of all the things that Voyage has been done. And there's a lot there. So I want to unpack it just a little bit for our listeners. For those who are unfamiliar with the community outreach advocate model, can you walk through what a typical referral would look like? How does an individual get a community outreach advocate? What does that session for a family look like? What do we mean by doing helping them navigate all of the services and set goals? So talk a little bit more about that. That's a great question. Um, We have broken down our COA model into a five-step process. And that first step is referral. So we work with multiple community organizations and the school system to help us identify students that would be a good fit and their families would be a good fit for our program. So our main focus is on low-income youth. While we predominantly serve African-American and Latinx youth, we are seeing an increase in diversity in our families that are coming to Um, seek the help of our services. So we work with the schools to um, get students referred that might be displaying some academic or behavioral issues that might be indicators of larger root issues in the home. Maybe they've talked to to mom or dad and they're facing some issues with food security or underemployment or unemployment, or maybe they know that the parents are are struggling because it's um, a single parent household and one of the parents are involved in the justice system and they need that extra support system. Before it ever gets to the point where DSS needs to get involved, where it's kind of a mandated government type of situation, we're there specifically to support the family, to get them to be able to reach their goals, to get them back on track or or get them on the track that they, they see is successful for themselves. And so it starts off with what we call a family profile survey. And something that I want to hit on is that we completely changed the name of that survey. It used to be called a needs assessment. And we realized that in order to best serve our community, we need to have that trust and we need to have that relationship. And by calling it a needs assessment, we've listened to the feedback of some of our families that it's a little bit um, unnerving or um, a little bit too much to come in and ha- already be told that you're needy and, and be t- like given this thing that's a needs assessment, like, oh, what are all of my needs? And, and rather than doing that, we wanted to change our, our language and make our folks feel more comfortable. We want to make sure that we are giving off the vibe that we are a non-judgmental, come as you are, um, completely comfortable space for you to, to be in. And so we've changed that survey to the, the family profile survey to get a well-rounded understanding of 
where we need to meet our families. So we ask questions on those social determinants of health. Um, We ask questions about employment, about family household size, about income, education levels, health concerns, um, any other issues with disciplinary or um, mental health issues, substance use issues. So all of those different things so that we can get an idea of the different types of goals that our families might come to us with. After that first session of them filling out our paperwork, giving us permission to talk to the school system, um, filling out their family profile survey, we'll do, we'll spend a week as a team coming up with um, ideas for certain resources that might be uh, able to best meet those needs that they've identified. And then they'll come back in for a goal setting session. So that's step two. And the goal setting session is basically them telling us, okay, yes, I see that I have issues in four different areas, but I really just want to focus on these two goals right now. Or um, here's what success looks like for me. I'm not sure what the goals might be or what my benchmark steps might be to get there. This is our process to really understand the wants and desires of the family members themselves. Then we take that back, we digest it, and we brainstorm as a team, and we have our third meeting to set up our actionable plan. So that might be prioritizing the goals because, for example, let's say we have a single mom who is unemployed. She keeps getting jobs, but um, she keeps getting let go from those jobs because she's dealing with some substance use uh, disorder issues. And she's shown up too late to work or she's missing work. And she's like, I want a job, but I'm really struggling with this issue. And the first thing for her is like, I need to get food on my kid's plate. Um, I need a job. I need to make money. But if we're not focusing on those substance use disorder issues, then that's not going to be a sustainable plan because the same cycle is going to repeat itself. So let's get you in to Coastal Horizons or one of our, our partner organizations that can help you address that. And in the meantime, we'll handle the food security issues and make sure that there's food on your on your table. So you can focus on yourself and getting yourself ready. We'll focus on supporting your family in the meantime. And then when you're ready, we'll get you employed in a place that it's sustainable for you. So that all being said, after we we go through that sustainability plan, our team drafts um, and puts on paper that sustainable action plan, the SMART goals, gets everything set up in terms of a timeline, all of that. And then um, we meet back up. We you know, help them to to keep on that timeline, follow up with them weekly, or if they just need it, maybe bi-weekly or monthly meetings, we help them do that um, on a timeline that meets their specific needs. So once we meet with that family, we make sure that they understand their timeline, the steps that they need to take. If we're referring them to an organization, they're going to have all the contact information right there and then. Um, that final step uh, that we go through is to just continue that follow-up, track their progress. We have information sharing agreements with any organizations that we have referred them to that we're able to talk about their progress from their perspective. And we're just that consistent support network. Maybe um, they're having trouble filling out applications or going through the paperwork for the other organization. We're that helping hand. Because a lot of a lot of times when you're filling out like government documents or applications for SNAP benefits or, or all of that sort of stuff, I mean, some of the questions can just be overbearing and overwhelming. And so to have somebody there to sit down with you and help you understand what you're doing is really helpful and it's really comforting. And we found that our families really appreciate those things. Um, so that COA model, we've seen a lot of success. Um, we've seen 86% of our families have achieved their six month and year goals last year. So that was really exciting for us. Um, we also have goals within our COA model that every single student in our families that are on our caseload are connected to at least one extracurricular activity, which then falls underneath our pillar of community connectedness, positive social bonding experiences. So 
our COA model is really the heart of our organization that can help us filter into other programs that we support or ones that our partner organizations provide. That's really helpful. And I think that the COA model has been such a signature program for you and really explains why we've saw in the research this gain in fourth grade reading over time in the district, because so much of what we know about early literacy has to do with uh, addressing trauma and preventing trauma, right? Because trauma keeps students from learning. And so while some people might think literacy, it's all about better reading programs and mentorship, Actually, it's about a whole host of other things that really your your COA model addresses. So that's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about your partner agencies or your partner organizations. You've mentioned them a few times as part of the COA model and who you refer to. And you have this interesting building also in the center of, of downtown, in the center of the area that you're serving. How do your partner organizations work with Voyage in order to really expand their services or to meet populations that they might have trouble reaching normally? Yeah, that's a great question. And and something that we've realized is that we can have fabulous programs, um, the staff capacity to serve tons of kids. But if you, if we're, our community is facing these transportation issues, which is one of the biggest barriers for our students, if we don't bring the programs to them and meet them where they are, they're not going to be able to access. So utilization is, is definitely an issue when we're working separately and we're not all centralized in an area where we can serve our kids. So over the past year, that's really something that I think that we have brought to the table is opening up our center for other organizations and their programming to partner with us and serve our kids and maximize our impact. I'll give you two examples, which I've mentioned earlier, Young Scientists Academy. They were focused on STEM instruction for students, whether it's coding or engineering or um, all you know, basic science experiments outside. They were having trouble um, accessing their target demographic because of where they were located, and they didn't have that reach in the community. And also, remember what I said about that trust and relationship building, our COAs, they provided the benefit of parents allowing their kids to come because it wasn't just a bunch of people from outside their neighborhood coming in saying, hey, let me tell you what your kids need. It was people from their community. And so since we already had that baseline of children in that platform to be able to serve them, and we might not have had necessarily the expertise to do that instruction, that's how we created Synergy in our partnership. We handle the transportation, the data analysis with our, our impact on our students, the coordination for the programs, and our partner agencies come in and offer the actual instruction for it. So Dr. Rob Condon, who is fabulous, he's the founder and executive director of Young Scientists Academy. We started um, over the pandemic this STEM after-school program called After School Science Ambassadors Program. So that is ASAP is the acronym for that. And he brought set up shop in the Hemingway Center. We realized that students as virtual learning were really, we were finding our um, African-American and Latinx students were failing at rates of 51% or more. Um, during the pandemic for virtual learning. And we were like, we got to do something in person. And so we said, what better way to do it than set up shop outside and do some sidewalk science? So we um, 
figured out experiments in different science activities that related to the curriculum of early elementary school students, and then provided a fun, immersive way for them to supplement their school instruction and get a little bit more excited about school again, because everybody hated virtual learning, you know, and to be able to come in person and get your hands dirty and start doing stuff, it kind of reinvigorates their passion and and their their love for school and learning. So um, that was a really fabulous way to get the kids involved. And now what we've done is created this process of once that trust is built, and the kids are consistently coming, then they kind of move up to a more intensive STEM programming at our second location, which is where Young Scientists Academy is actually located. So that group then goes over to the bigger building that we, uh, the second location that we got, and we're able to bring in a second group of kids to Hemingway Center. So that's sort of like the Hemingway Center is like the introduction to programming. It's in their community. They feel more comfortable we get the kids comfortable and then they go to the larger space that is more conducive to productive programming. So it's really given us an opportunity to be able to better reach our youth and to get increased participation. Um, the next program that I'll give an example is uh, our virtual reality program with Pivot via Virtual Reality. Um, and the acronym for that is PB2R, run by Mr. Laval Snotty, who began that program actually as an intervention tool in the Youth Development Center portion of uh, the juvenile justice system. And so it was students that um, had made some bad decisions and in, in were ju- in juvenile and um they started to express better behaviors. They were doing really well and they had, they were showing a lot of potential for turning their lives around and they had already made that switch. And so we're not trying to 180, you know, switch up a student's behavior there. We're trying to take the students that really want to be successful and don't have that support system or may, might not have all the resources that they need to be the best versions of themselves. That's who this program is for. And so he wanted to use it not just as an intervention, but as a prevention tool before kids even start making the decisions to go that would make them go into the criminal justice system. So again, he, he didn't have a, tar- he knew his target population, but he didn't know how to access them. And so we allowed him to um, engage in a one-year contract with us where he would run his programs with our students. We're both able to um, have access to these students. We can identify their needs or identify the issues that they're experiencing. Um, and most of these kids are on our COA caseload so that we can better work with the family and understand their needs because not only are we receive are we providing a benefit from the students by providing this personalized um, like career exploration and life coaching and you know become the best version of yourself program through through VR. But they're also providing us a benefit because they're giving us feedback on how we can better personalize this to them and having these conversations with their like coaches and mentors. And then they can communicate with us on how our COAs can better meet the family needs. So it's like this wraparound approach of when we are working together as partner organizations, we really are creating synergy and better able to serve our youth. That's a really great example of the way that you can use an asset like a building um, and the and build on the trust you've already created in the community in order to expand access from partner agencies into communities they wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. You know, as we think about trust building and we think about empowerment in particular, one of the things that has always stood out to me in the time that I've worked with first Blue Ribbon Commission and now Voyage 
uh, is the way that you've really embraced equity and inclusion. And I think that shows up in all three of your pillars, right? So in, in the first pillar, you've got, you know, youth as part of the YOLO program, which I want to hear more about. Your community um, outreach advocates are members from the community. They're not just trained social workers who you've hired in from some other neighborhood, right? And then when you're connecting communities with positive enrichment, so much of that work is about building relationships in the community. How did um, Voyage end up or why does it embrace that kind of involvement and empowerment approach? What's the philosophy behind that? Yeah. And tell me a little bit about what you've seen as terms of the results. Um, why do you think that that's been effective for you? Yeah. So I think that first, you know, when we have a bunch of people that are like-minded, that have similar life experiences, that look similar, you're not going to be able to really solve issues. When you get that kind of similarity where everybody is on the same thought process, you're really doing yourself a disservice. I think that when you have diversity in a group, and not just racial diversity, but diversity in gender, diversity in age, diversity in life experience, you're going to be able to benefit your community so much more because you get diverse perspectives. And so one of the reasons that we really do those community events events, and, you know, just fun days and stuff like that. It's like, well, how does that connect to Pathways to Success? Why are you just doing a field day? What does that have to do with success? It's about bringing people together. It's about starting conversations with people that wouldn't normally have conversations. It's about inviting, you know, one of the really powerful pieces to our board is that we do have local decision makers on our board. We have a ma the mayor on our board. We have a county commissioner. Um, and when we can invite those people to come to our community events and just not come as a city official, come as a human being that wants to hang out with other human beings and talk and, and discuss opinions, that's so important to bring diversity to the table and to be able to talk to each other about your different life experiences and create a little bit more understanding. I think that from our community we have seen in terms of progress and, and community input, I think that we've seen our our, our target demographics of, of low-income, predominantly African-American in, individuals have really started to use their voice, I think, a little bit more because we've been able to provide that platform for them. And it's not just Voyage. It's a ton of different organizations that are providing that platform. But we really are focused on a bottom-up approach of hearing what are your daily struggles? What are the systems and institutions? How are they impacting your lives where if there's not representation in those local governments and those those um, decision-making powers that be, how are we able to, to make those decisions on institutions and systems and processes that impact community members' lives without their input? So we provide that platform for them to tell us what they need and what they want and how different things are impacting them that we might never have considered. So I think that that we've seen more in, uh, increased representation in terms of uh, voter turnout. We've seen more people want to get registered to vote, to register for the census so that they could be counted, to come out and uh, to town hall meetings, to city hall meetings so that their voices can be heard, taking more of... Um, a vested interest in community politics and civic engagement. I think that we've really seen our community members want to be involved because it's not that they didn't want to be involved before. It's that I think the history of Wilmington and that racial and social injustice and discrimination 
really gave off the vibe that their voices didn't matter. And so now that 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 we're saying, no, your voice matters, and now that we're really pressing upon the issue that we cannot continue without having equal representation, having equity and representation, and we're placing such an emphasis on that, it's like, finally, I think our community feels like they're finally going to be heard. And so now they're, they're really coming forward because I think before they didn't want to waste their time. Um, and that's sad to say, but there, we, can't, we can't deny that there has been a really longstanding history of racial discrimination in Wilmington. And we have a lot of progress to make. There's still a long way to go, but I think that we've made a lot of progress in the past few years. So I'm going to ask the awkward question now. Like a lot of leaders of organizations, you are um, not from the community which you're serving. You're a white woman and you are serving low income, primarily African-American and Latinx um, families. So how do you navigate this this challenge of inclusion and, and leading this organization from your positionality of who you are? And that is a great question. Yes, it is a loaded question, but... It's really important to discuss. And I think that it's important to note that I don't know everything when it comes to coming in to serve a community. And I think it's important that I I come out and am transparent with, I'm not coming in here telling you guys what I think you need. I want to listen to what you need and use my education and my administrative experience to provide a platform for you to be empowered and, and use your voice and tell me how I can serve you. It's not me telling you how you need to be served, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few different points that I want to make. Uh, I think that the second point would be when you are a young white woman or just a white person in general coming into a community, you need to be hu- you need to be humble and you need to know that it's not just going to be respect is automatically given and that trust is automatically there. It's going to take time to build and it's not on the response. It's not, there's not an equal responsibility of each party to build that respect and trust. You are coming into a neighborhood that is not yours. You're coming into a space that is sensitive and you need, you need to know that it's going to take extra effort and that's okay. Um, it's going to take multiple times where you might have people that do not trust you. You could have the best intentions and be doing really great things. And it's not just going to be you do one or two great things. It needs to be a consistent effort. So it took me, I mean, I'm still working to build trust. I've been with this organization since 2016 as an intern. I've been leading this organization since 2019. And I'm still working on building that trust. And I'm okay with that. Does it get frustrating sometimes because you're like, yes, I have the best intentions. Why don't you see that? Sure. But There's a reason that there's a distrust there. And we need to recognize that, um, you know, our ancestors did contribute to that reason. And so now it's on our responsibility to be an ally and to make an effort and a consistent effort and a long-term effort at expressing that, hey, I I am here because I have good intentions and because I want to listen to your perspective and because I want to change the trajectory that we have been going down for a long time. I want to be a part of that movement and I want to empower you. I don't want to just come in and be the savior either. I want to empower you to make change in your community. That's really important too, is, is not coming in and being that savior. Oh, I can save everybody. I can help everybody. It's like, how do I help you help yourself? How do I empower you to become successful and to make yourself successful? Um, I think that something I've struggled with is you know, 
when I first came in, a lot of times I was the only white person in a room and you've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to just get over it. You got to, um, and that sounds harsh, but it's like, if you're going to come into that space, that's, those are things that you need to expect. And now I, I walk in and sometimes I don't even notice it. I feel like really part of the community. And um, it's really great to be able to walk down the street and have community members sit on the porch and, and recognize me and wave to me and want to have conversations. And, and I think that's another point too. And I kind of already hit on it, but I really want to drive it home is that you might start conversations like at community events. Don't just stand there and be there just to be there. Talk to people engage with them, ask them the questions. And you might get some dirty looks or some weird looks at first. And you just got to keep trying, keep trying. And and after you try and try and people see that, hey, she's really here to stay or she's really committed to our community, then they start warming up to you. And, and again, that is completely reasonable and justified. And it's just something that you need to be expecting. So as we get ready to head out of this time of pandemic, we're starting to see masks. Um, people are being able to take up masks. They're beginning to think about returning to school full time in person in the fall. What's next for Voyage? Where do you see your organization going in the next few years? Yeah. So we, as I said, we have already gone through a really big period of growth um, in 2019, over the past two, I'll talk about the past two years and then I'll talk about the next two years. So the past two years, we have grown from three employees to seven paid employees and two interns, and we are getting ready to hire on another paid employee in July. So we've grown a lot there. We've also almost doubled the amount of uh, individuals in our community that we have served. Granted, it's not all continuous service. Sometimes it's a one-off resource connection, but we have been able to increase our services due to the pandemic because of um, our partnerships that we've been able to form during this time. And lastly, as I've mentioned, we've adopted a second location downtown. So we've been able to double the amount of youth programming because we have two different locations now. So that being said, while we still will grow as an organization, we're taking this time to really stabilize. Um, we've gone through, I mean, everybody's going to go through growing pains, but we're really at a great point right now. And we really want to continue that consistent, great um, tra trajectory that we're on for a good year or two before we think about growing either even further. I will say that coming out of the pandemic, we are starting to uh, increase our numbers for our in-person. So we really were capping at about 10 students for our after school, going up to 15, 20 students, um, you know, doing more in-person programming, doing rather than webinars, health-related webinars, like we just did a prenatal, perinatal, postnatal care with Community Care of the Lower Cape Fear, another nonprofit organization, rather than doing webinars, doing in-person in um, guest speaking or workshops opportunities. Um, hosting more community events. We haven't been able to host our big community events, or if we did, it was a free community cookout, but people walked up and then got their food and walked away. So it didn't have that social bonding aspect that we really wanted. So our next um, big event as North Carolina uh, releases restrictions or lifts restrictions, we are going to be hosting a Juneteenth event in collaboration with an organization called Vigilant Hope um, at Portia Hines Park, which is right down the street from us. Um, where we'll expect about 250 individuals there. We'll obviously have to abide by COVID, by COVID guidelines, um, you know, mask mandates and social distancing, but we're going to do our best to provide as much as normal as possible a great community field day event on June 19th. That's fantastic. 
So if folks want to learn more about Voyage Wilmington, where should they go? Um, do you, do you have a website? Are you on any of social media? Tell them about your contact details. Yeah, so we would love to have you check out our website at www.voyagewilmington.org. And on there, you can learn about our programs. You can learn how to support, volunteer, um, donate uh, to our, our uh, programs and events. You can learn up how to sign up for uh, learn how to sign up for events. You can also check out our Facebook page, which is just Voyage Wilmington, and um, that's where we'll post flyers for upcoming events or different th- ways that you can support marketing materials, etc. And then we also have a an Instagram account, which is Voyage underscore ILM. So we, we don't post on Instagram as much, um, but Facebook we are very active on. Um, and feel free to inbox us on Facebook. Or if you have a specific question, you can always email info at voyagewilmington.org. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing about Voyage. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated that conversation with Jenna and particularly her willingness to reflect on the additional responsibility that she has as a white leader who is serving an African-American Latinx low-income community in Wilmington. If you'd like to learn more about the practices and designs that network leaders use to make a social impact in education, visit us on the web at nnsi.northwestern.edu. There you can download all of the reports in the Networks for Social Impact and Education series and learn more about the research that we conduct to help networks of organizations move the needle on the most pressing social issues of our time.